Last week, we saw how Paul and company, his partners, Silas, Timothy, and even Luke, came to Europe with the gospel. And they arrived in the Greek city of Philippi, and there they met Lydia. Uh, We read that uh, Lydia was uh, both a wealthy merchant of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. That title, worshiper of God, was a title given to Gentiles, uh, Gentiles who had come to, to worship the God of Israel. And so it seems that Lydia, she is a person who, although she was very wealthy, and although she had a Gentile background, she found no satisfaction, or as uh, Elder Rod reminded us this morning, her heart found no rest until she began to sense hope and light in the God of Israel. And she realized that the God of Israel could give her something that her money and her religious background of pagan nations could not give her. And so it was that she was praying to the Lord when the Apostle Paul came and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to her. And the Lord opened her heart. And Lydia received Jesus and she was baptized. And Luke now continues and tells us how the gospel came to two other people who were very different from Lydia. But nevertheless, the gospel came with power to meet their needs. And the first person we meet in this passage is the slave girl. And so Luke writes, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, that's a very interesting description, the spirit of divination, because in the Greek, it literally says she had the spirit of python. Um, It's interesting for a couple of different reasons. Here, the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who had come to destroy the works of the serpent, the devil, is confronted by the servant of the python spirit. Do you see there's something of a spiritual battle happening here? But more immediately, the reference to the spirit of Python is in the Greek mythology that was so part of their culture. Remember, Philippi is a city in Greece, and in the Greek mythology, the god Apollo, uh, he killed the serpent oracle Python to establish his own oracle at Delphi. And the Greek people believed that Apollo inspired or imbued his female followers with the spirit of the python. And these women, these girls, and I I think I read that often they were under the influence of various narcotics. Uh, So it was believed that the god Apollo would imbue these girls with the spirit of python, and these girls were consulted as divine oracles. Uh, The Greek people went to find counsel, direction to these girls to hear from their gods. And that is actually exactly what we are reading here. Luke tells us that the slave girl who had a spirit of divination or the spirit of Python brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, Luke is not telling us whether there was any 
accuracy in her fortune telling, rather that there was such a cultural and religious framework that allowed her to be exploited for financial gain. And notice how different she is from Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy uh, businesswoman. She has status in community. She had a family. She had apparently a large home that she could open up to the believers. This girl, she has nothing. Her mind belongs to the evil spirit. Her body belongs to her masters. Her needs are entirely different. And this girl, she followed Paul and us, Luke tells us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, to our ears, we read this, that we almost want to celebrate, and we almost want to say, That's great! Even the evil spirit cannot but help proclaim the truth. But if we see how Paul reacted, we realize that there's something else happening here. We read that Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Um, Now, there is a long tradition of different English translations that translate the Greek verb with the English word annoyed. But the Greek word can mean annoyed, but it also can mean burdened, disturbed, troubled. And I mention that because I think it's helpful for us and important for us to realize that Paul is not lashing out against her out of irritation. She is not, he is not annoyed with her. Rather, Paul was burdened for her and for the gospel. And so even though the words that came out of her sound like uh, a testimony in favor of the gospel, uh, we have to realize that in that Greek culture, most high God could mean anything. It could mean Zeus. It could mean any of the local deities. And what she was saying when she said, uh, these men are the servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation, it's vague enough so that there was a, a more than likelihood and possibility that the words of the gospel were being co-opted in the service of pagan religions. And so I think we, we are seeing here that Paul was very troubled and very burdened. And even though to our ears, when we hear her say uh, that these, are, these men are the servants of the Most High God, proclaiming to you the way of salvation, even though to us that sounds like a legitimate testimony and endorsement of the gospel, we realize that this is a girl who, under the influence of the evil spirit, has a, a history of saying all sorts of false things, all sorts of evil spirit-inspired things. And so there is really no way for Paul to endorse this little snippet of what she is saying without at the same time validating and endorsing everything else that she has uh, she is known to have said and was saying. And that is why, and notice, uh, he is not lashing out at her we read that the Paul turned and said to the spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And I thought it's really interesting that Luke speaks no more of her. And I was wondering, what happened to her after this? Now, there is no way for anyone, I don't think, to know for sure, for certain. But I was thinking about, you know, how does God usually work? What's the general pattern of his work? And it seems to me when we read the Gospels, when God delivers people from their earthly affliction and bondage, and we see how Jesus, during his earthly ministry, healed many people and even cast out demons and evil spirits out of people. When God delivers people from their earthly affliction and bondage, the purpose was always to lead them to Christ for spiritual deliverance. And so my take in in this situation, and again, I realize it is uh, just a personal take, it seems to me it's helpful to realize the general pattern of how God works. And I think there is every hope that this exploited girl who was in spiritual and physical bondage was delivered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And she became God's cherished daughter and a beloved sister to the believers. After all, isn't that how God usually works? He brings light where there is darkness. He brings grace, healing, and restoration where there is ruin and chaos. So think about this. Lydia, on the one hand, her needs are deeply intellectual, spiritual. And the gospel comes with power to deliver her. This slave girl, her needs are entirely different. She is a literally and physically, spiritually exploited girl. And the gospel comes and delivers her. And that brings us to the second main character of this passage, the Philippian jailer. Now notice how Paul commanded the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very hour. And then very next verse we read, the slave girl's owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Now, what's really interesting is that in the Greek, it's the same verb that is used three times, and Luke seems to be doing that deliberately. So when Paul commands, in the name of Jesus Christ to come out, it's that one verb, and we read that it came out, it's the same verb, and it's the same verb again when we read that her masters, her owners, saw that their hope of gain was gone. It's the same verb. And the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce put it very nicely like this. When Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, he exercised their source of income as well. And indeed, we see here they cleverly disguised their greed-induced rage, and they dressed up their... uh, a deceitful motivation with nationalistic pride and anti-Semitism. So in verse 20, what do they say? These men are Jews. 
And they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. Who do these Jews think they are to tell us Romans what to do, what to believe? How dare they? And so there was a riot. And the Roman magistrates, they arrested Paul and Silas. They beat them with rods. They inflicted many blows upon them, and they threw them into prison. But the dungeon became a sanctuary. And so we read, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You realize what just happened to them? They were stripped naked. They were struck with many blows. They are wounded. They are in severe pain. And they were thrown into the inner prison, the darkest, the foulest place. Their feet are bound in stocks. What are they doing? They are not groaning. They sang. They did not curse men. They blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. I would imagine they had never seen anything like this before. How two men, severely wounded and in prison, obviously in great pain, how these two men were singing praises to God and they were praying. And I'm sure they had never seen anything like this before. They had never heard anything like this before. You know, when God's people praise Him, God is there with them. And God came with power. God shook the foundations of the prison and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You know, this is a nightmare scenario for the Philippian jailer. He fears that all the prisoners have escaped and he drew his sword and he was about to take his life. But God, God had Paul stay for the sake of this jailer. And so Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And then the jailer fell down before Paul and Silas and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because Paul, Paul and Silas, they were the prisoners who needed to be set free. But when God shook the prison and made the chains fall off, the jailer realized that he, he was complicit in opposing God and that he was himself a hopeless prisoner to sin and death. So he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, they answer, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he did. And the jailer washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Lydia had one particular and unique set of needs. The slave girl, her needs were yet 
different than Lydia's. And this jailer is also in a different place and different position with different needs. You see, this jailer was a part of the system that turned blind eye to justice. He participated and he benefited from the wicked system. But when Jesus saved them, this jailer brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. So do you see what happened here? Jesus saved him and gave him a new allegiance. He openly aligned himself with Christ and his people. And I think this is fascinating for us and very important for us. Who is Jesus for? What good is Jesus? Who is the gospel for? What good is the gospel? Today in our culture, we increasingly hear that Jesus, the gospel, is for conservative white people, you know, who are better left behind. Or maybe in some other cultures, the answer might be different. But increasingly, the answer is that Jesus is not for everybody. There are other ways to God. But let me tell you, there is not one culture, not one philosophy, not one system that can meet the various needs of unique individuals that fill the earth except Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because Jesus and he alone is big enough. And his gospel and it alone is big enough to meet the needs of everyone in their unique circumstances and places. No matter who they are, no matter what their needs, Jesus is able to save them. Jesus is able to deliver them. Jesus is good for everyone. His gospel is for everyone. And Jesus is, can I put it this way? Jesus is good for you. And his gospel is for you. And so we come to the third and the last point. And I want to consider with you what it means to suffer as Christians. What it means to suffer as Christians. Now the next morning, the magistrates, they order Paul's release. And Paul answers, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Now, what Paul is referring to to is a a very well-established Roman law that did not permit a magistrate to punish a Roman citizen untried and uncondemned. And there were heavy penalties for the government officials and magistrates if ever they violated the the citizenship privileges of a Roman citizen. And so when they learned from Paul that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were understandably terrified that they had violated Paul and Silas, and they apologized to them. And you see here that Paul's citizenship was meant to be a safety barrier. And as Paul travels and continues on his ministry, that uh, comes up time and time again. His Roman citizenship affords him a measure of protection. 
But Paul, he is not merely a Roman citizen, is he? Because his citizenship is in heaven. And that means, that means no one may harm Paul apart from God's wise and sovereign purpose. And when God allows his people to suffer, God ensures that their suffering leads to incomparable glory. I mean, who could have guessed? Who could have guessed that Paul's imprisonment, suffering, how he was physically molested and abused, who could have guessed that Paul's suffering would lead to the salvation of this jailer and his household? But are we still surprised? Who, who could have guessed that God would turn the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross is where people go to die. The cross is where life comes to an end. But who could have guessed that God would turn the cross of Jesus Christ to be the fountain of life? Who could have guessed that God would turn Jesus' suffering into our blessing? You say, Jesus' suffering, I mean, who could have guessed this? Jesus' suffering led to our forgiveness, and his death became our life. And so we, we see, don't we, that God ordained all of Jesus' suffering for his sacred and blessed purpose. And that is the same thing that we see in Paul. Paul's citizenship is in heaven. No one may harm him and molest him apart from God's wise and sovereign and loving purpose. But when God does allow Paul to suffer, we can be sure that he will bring out of that suffering unimaginable, unlooked for blessing and glory. And what's amazing is that what was true for Jesus and what was true for Paul, the New Testament tells us, is true for every believer because the Bible promises that that is exactly what God is doing for each and every one who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is that when the New Testament talks about the sufferings of Christians, it's not limited to suffering that was caused by preaching the gospel because your God and my God Our God is big enough that he's able to take all sorts of things that we suffer in this life and produce out of them something marvelous and glorious and beautiful. And that's the promise that God gives you because your citizenship is also in heaven. You have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross and he died for you and you have received his death as atonement for your sin and you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and you look to him as your righteousness and as your life and as your hope and as your glory and because of that 
your suffering also is under God's wise and sovereign direction. And in time, in time, God will reveal to you what he has accomplished through your suffering. That's the glorious part. Not that you have to sit in prison because you are arrested for preaching the gospel for God to bless you, but for the simple fact that you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus, that even now God is working out his glorious purposes in you. So loved ones, be courageous. Believe in God. And that is how the dungeon becomes a sanctuary. And that is when our groanings and our moanings and our sorrowful cries turn to praise and thanks to God. So loved ones, would you please, would you commit your fears, your pain and your suffering to your sovereign Savior? And learn, learn from the faith and the courage of these believers here. And finally, remember these words. The words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And Jesus says, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we acknowledge with joy and gratitude that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, our Master. And we commit to you, Lord, our entire lives. And we look to you in our many sufferings. Lord, we carry many heavy burdens. And so we turn to you that we may find from your presence and from your heart hope and joy and a future. Oh God, please comfort your children gathered in this place who carry burdens and weight upon their shoulders and upon their hearts. May they find grace and may they find peace from your throne of grace. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.